On behalf of Avanti and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast focused on headlines in cybersecurity, where Dr. Srinivas Makamala, Chief Product Officer at Avanti, will discuss how ransomware threats are targeting state and local agencies with increasing frequency. Well, thanks, Joe. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, today, I'm going to be moderating a really interesting hour examining state and local government's fight against ransomware attacks. Ransomware threats are targeting state and local agencies with increasing frequency. Many states are passing legislation banning state agencies from paying ransomware. State and local CIOs are finding they must strengthen their defenses and, as importantly, strengthen and broaden their mitigation strategies in case an attack does get through their protections. All states and local governments have security measures in place to protect data and systems. What are some specific threats and protections from ransomware they are experiencing in today's increasingly dangerous IT and networking environment? Our guests are joining us to discuss the importance of securing data and infrastructure in their fight against ransomware. So joining us today are Ben Dumpke, the Information Systems Manager for Hortonville, Wisconsin Area School District. Now, with ben, ben is David Hitchman, the Acting Director, Information Technology and Cybersecurity for the U.S. Government Accountability Office. We're also pleased to have Doug Levin, the Co-Founder and National Director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange. Adding to our panel of experts is Dave Stern, the Lead for State, Local, Tribal, and Territorial at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And with us from the private sector today is Dr. Srinivas Mukamala, the Chief Product Officer at Ivante. Now, first off, let's let our guests take a minute to tell us a little bit more about themselves. Ben, why don't you kick things off? Thank you. Uh, I'm Ben Dumke, the Information Systems Manager for Hortonville Area School District. I've been with the district for over 20 years. Uh, we're a small but fast-growing district with about uh, just over 4,200 students this year. Uh, my background is mainly working with Windows and Microsoft tools, uh, but in a small district, you need to be a jack-of-all-trades, and I handle or support pretty much every facet of technology for the district. Uh, David, how about you? Great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, really great to be here. I think this is a really important conversation that, that we're all continuing to have in, in this sector of the world. Uh, my name is Dave Hinchman. I'm an acting director for IT and cybersecurity at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. I'm on our IT and cybersecurity team, and included in my portfolio is the reviews that we conduct of the cybersecurity of critical infrastructure sectors, uh, which is how uh, brought me here today. We have a we'll, I'd like to mention this in a minute, but we've got a report that just came out today, as well as some upcoming work coming out hopefully later this month on K-12 cybersecurity. And it's great to be here. Outstanding. Thanks, Dave. That's going to be really interesting to talk about later. So we're also pleased to have Doug with us. Doug, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be with uh, the other distinguished presenters. Um, I am the co-founder and national director of a national uh, nonprofit private organization called the K-12 Security Information Exchange. Uh, we launched in 2020 with the sole mission of helping to protect K-12 organizations, uh, public entities, from uh, emerging cybersecurity risks like ransomware. Uh, my background is 
uh, inside the Beltway in D.C. in a variety of nonprofit association uh, policy and research roles. Um, I've been involved in uh, the education and technology arena since we were connecting schools to that thing called the Information Superhighway that Vice President Gore helped establish. Um, and uh, seen a lot of things along the way, and I've been pleased over that time uh, to support the work of school districts, but also state agencies, and uh, routinely working with state leadership um, in uh, state departments of education, state boards of education, uh, and other uh, regional uh, uh, education agencies across the state. Well, Doug's definitely going to bring a wealth of information and experience with us today. Thanks a lot. So we also now have David Stern. David, you've got a lot to offer. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Hey, all. Uh, Dave Stern from CISA here. Uh, I work within a new analytics cell uh, being put up, stood up as part of CISA's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Uh, we work across all of CISA's industry, state and local, international and federal partners to develop and share actionable cyber threat intelligence, and we do a lot of work on ransomware and pre-ransomware activity. Uh, in previous roles, I led our uh, cybersecurity collaboration efforts with state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, and also served as our section chief overseeing all of our SLTT and election cyber exercises. And in both of those roles, I worked across states, cities, local governments, tribal nations, boards of election, public utilities, really all the state and local folks um, to help strengthen, strengthen their cybersecurity posture. So happy to be here today. Wow. Okay. Well, finally, we have uh, Srinivas. Srinivas, uh, why don't you give us in your background? Thank you. It's an honor to be on this uh, panel today. Srinivas Mukamla, I'm the Chief uh, Product Officer for Ivanti. Uh, again, uh, served uh, in the United States government as a Chief Scientist for Computational Analysis of Cyberterrorism against the U.S. Did that for eight years. Very involved. Uh, and, and we also do a quarterly ransomware report. We share it with industry where we're maintaining a global index of what's causing these ransomware authors to be effective. And we compared that with the DHS CISA KEVs, non exploitable vulnerabilities. It's a huge correlation and also some very interesting nuggets that people can learn from that. Well, thanks, Renovitz, and uh, wow, what a great panel we have today. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, this should be a lot of fun and really interesting for our audience. So let's get right to the questions, all right? Ben, according to a NAS CIO report, the number one enterprise threat named by state CIOs for cyber, is cybersecurity for 2022. Now, prominent in that category is ransomware. What have current trends shown about ransomware attacks? Are they more frequent? more sophisticated what well that's a great question to start off with um one of the talking about the trends one of the disturbing trends that uh, we're seeing and i've had a couple of reports i think in the past month or so is attackers destroying data in frustration and we're seeing that based on whether or not they're maybe not getting paid or the ransom negotiations are breaking down um in one case, I think the attackers came forward and said that they were just getting frustrated with the um, defenses that were in place, so they just started deleting uh, data. We're also seeing that data is being released even if the ransoms are paid. So those are those are two things that uh, are kind of new and hopefully aren't going to continue in in that regard. 
Obviously, the attacks are increasing in frequency. One company, uh, TrueSec, which is a global consultant uh, that specializes in security, reported that pre-pandemic, they dealt with about 20 ransomware attacks per year. Now they're handling about 200 and can't take on any new clients. So obviously, you know, that, that frequency is, in, is increasing. More sophisticated is, that's a bit of a subjective question. In, in some ways, yes. We'll, we'll take the consultant answer of it depends. Um, I think we still see uh, engagements starting off with simple gift card phishing attacks. Uh, last week, we sent out uh, emails showing how to identify fake voicemails that uh, that come in. Um, I think that the systems are less siloed now, but IT teams, especially in large organizations, are still siloed. And we have this added complexity combined with a slower organizational change becomes a major factor in, in dealing with these. And really, I think we just need to still focus on the fundamentals, uh, things like change control, least privilege, and account management to uh, to help combat these issues. You know, Ben, it's, it's interesting. You bring up some points. It's interesting how the basics are still the mainstay of attacks. You know, the, the phishing, the clicking on links, the um, uh, password management, uh, uh, identity, credentialing, access management. Isn't it, is it frustrating? Are we getting better at that, do you think? At, at protecting against those basic uh, attacks that we have, I think it's I think it's getting tougher as you know, especially coming from a small school district uh, where we have a very small IT team. Uh, we don't have anyone right. dedicated for security. Uh, things like, and I know a, a nearby school district a couple of years ago, um, they got hit due to an account that was somebody had resigned. They never took care of the account. That account got hacked, and they were able to exfiltrate data using that account. So things like that are still very prevalent. Um, the complexity, uh, I we dealt with one of our vendors doing some uh, power monitoring. They had a module that was ba that also included a log for J code. And to his credit, when that when that broke. He went through, audited his code, and he's like, hey, we have this in here. I didn't even realize it was in here. I don't need it. And he pulled it all out. So you kind of, it's still that foundational of understanding, and we're still relying on vendors, whether it's Microsoft or Apple or Google or whoever, to make sure that they're cleaning up their code and they're not reusing stuff that's vulnerable and leading to more vulnerabilities down the road. Fabulous points, great points, and, and a lot of it is the basics and the cleanups, and also, you know, it's going to lead into something that we're going to talk about later on or another day. It's the supply chain hazards that are out there. So definitely, thanks a lot. Now we're going to come to Dave. Dave, you know, we were just talking about though. You just did it in your intro. GAO just this morning released a report on federal assistance to state, local, tribal, and territorial entities in fighting ransomware, titled "Ransomware." Federal agencies provide useful assistance but can improve collaboration. Would you share with us what the report covers, maybe some of its highlights, and also maybe where our partners can find it? Absolutely. I'd love to. So uh, last question first. Uh, the report is available on GAO's homepage, www.gao.gov. There's a section in the middle of that page that talks about recent reports and testimonies. 
And a bunch of products came out today, so you might need to hit the view all button, but it should pop up and you'll see it. Um, and if you want to take notes, just to make sure you got the right thing, the report number is GAO-22-104767. But we looked at three main things in this report. Um, we looked at what are federal agencies doing to assist SLTTs in protecting against ransomware. We looked at the different perspectives that SLTT organizations and other national organizations have on ransomware assistance they're receiving from federal agencies. And then finally, we looked at to what extent federal agencies were addressing key practices for, excuse me, for effective collaboration when providing ransomware assistance. And I think the, the first question we had about what are agencies doing to assist LTTs was one of the more interesting topics we had in this report. You know, we cover everyone, uh, CISA, FBI, Secret Service, a couple of the other organizations that have smaller roles. We spend a fair amount of time looking at the role of MSISAC, which obviously plays such a huge role in both education awareness and information sharing and analysis. For the, I think at the last count, uh, the estimates are that, you know, the nation has somewhere around 90,000 SLTT organizations. So it's a huge audience uh, and the work that they do to get information out for folks. Um, when we looked at sort of, you know, perceptions about how, you know, the quality of federal assistance, um, the organizations we talked to were generally satisfied. Uh, there's always room for improvement. Um, I think, you know, found that sort of awareness, outreach and communication could be improved, but, but overall, general satisfaction. And then finally, looking at the extent to which CIS, FBI, and Secret Service were employing these sort of, you know, best practices for interagency coordination. Um, we have seven key practices that we GAO use when we're looking at this sort of situation. And we found that one practice was met, but six of them were, were partially met. Um, and I think sort of an existing, excuse me. <clears throat> so for instance, you know, uh, interagency collaboration on ransomware assistance tended to be informal and lack detailed procedures. So it's there, but it's sort of people doing things and there could be more rigor and, and guidance and structure around that. Um, but I think, you know, worth noting, um, and I'm sure David Stern could talk about this, uh, CIS's new joint ransomware task force uh, is really well positioned to start addressing a lot of that and to take charge and move out and start bringing a little more structure to the federal response to ransomware. So a question on it halfway. You, you're talking about the, the um, some of the factors are met, some of them are partially met. Uh, the one thing I, I thought that was interesting is sharing the information in an informal manner versus a formal uh, basis that went down. Do you think that possibly that there's going to need to be sort of a give and take or middle ground on that? Because sometimes if we bring too much formality in it, it people tend to just sort of, hit the button in order to say, okay, I, I've met the requirement, now I don't need to do it anymore. Where the informal sharing of the information a lot of times allows it to, to spread out more comfortably and quicker. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really good point. Um, we, we at GAO will never advocate for over-bureaucratic, over-bureaucrizing something. Um, I think what we what we saw is that it was more a matter of people are just doing these things and it's not repeatable and it's not necessarily done the same way each time. But I think that there's a middle ground of providing a little structure and guidance so that people know who they're supposed to communicate, what they're supposed to communicate and when they're supposed to communicate. And that works all directions, you know, between CISA and its partner organizations, the MSI SAC, as well as providing structure for 
uh, a local jurisdiction that maybe has been impacted by an incident. Great, good information. So everybody remember that's 22-104767. You heard it here, go get it. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. So Doug, we're gonna to come to you. The as a service model seems to be very successful for mission, budget, and security in today's IT ecosystem. So what does everything as a service encompass and how would that support mission accomplishment and security of data from ransomware attacks for state government? So I think it's important to look and sort of step back and, and sort of observe the trends um, sort of sweeping through society generally, but they are sweeping uh, all across state and local government. And that is an increasing reliance on technology for the operations and critical services that uh, state and local government agencies provide. Um, and there's no question that they uh, are now relying on those services like never before. That um, provides lots of advantages. Uh, it also increases uh, their their potential attack surface, right? Um, now, uh, as uh, government agencies are adopting uh, these technologies more, what they are not doing is standing up and operating their own servers, right, and running these on-premises locally. Uh, instead, as, as, as your question points out, they are outsourcing these services to a variety of vendors who are delivering these tools and applications um, as a service up in the cloud. Um, there are a lot of advantages uh, to this. Um, you know, to take the example of uh, Ben's uh, case in his small school district, you know, certainly the notion that a technology company um, that is uh, full-time working to you know, develop and, and deliver applications uh, should have more capacity to protect its systems than you know, school district IT staff who are stretched with many, many uh, different responsibilities in an increasingly complex environment. Of course, um, while this is a shifting risk, um, it is really an assumption and a, and a hope that it is actually helping to uh, increase the security of uh, you know, government agencies. Uh, and unfortunately, we have seen some cases where uh, particularly you know, smaller vendors to state and local government agencies may not have uh, the cybersecurity protections that we would like to see them in place, uh, have, in, have in place. So, uh, you know, I think this trend of sort of everything as a service is, uh, is, is here to stay. I think there are many advantages to it. It is not a panacea. Um, one class of these services that I do want to call out, of course, is uh, sort of managed cybersecurity services. And these may make quite a bit of sense for particularly smaller state and local government agencies that don't have the capacity or the ability to protect their systems, say, 24-7, 365. Um, and I think as you sort of think about the scale of the issue that we're facing, um, I think, um, you know, there's a mention about 90,000 SLTT organizations. Um, thinking about how to aggregate uh, and 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 apply some defenses at scale is going to be critical for us to, to make a real difference in this issue going forward. All very good points, Doug. You know, you mentioned something about cybersecurity as a service to help mitigate the ransomware attack. One of our users actually had, or one of our listeners actually had a question on how expensive are they? Aren't, isn't it based upon the size of your infrastructure, the size of your organization? 
Yeah, it depends, right, is the, is the you know, sort of real answer. Um, it depends on, you know, the sector that you're in. Um, it depends on the specific type of service that you are looking for. I mean, the good news is that, you know, some of these services are available at a very low cost, available open source or even free, uh, right? So uh, MSISAC provides a malicious domain monitoring service that is available for free. Uh, to, mem- to SLTT members. Uh, there are other you know, services that are available at very low or no cost to state and local government agencies. But of course, if you want advanced uh, services, uh, around the clock uh, monitoring, uh, and have higher risks that you're trying to manage, you're likely to pay uh, obviously much, much more money. On my experience, we've looked at a couple of different quotes and yeah, the price ranges do vary greatly. We we saw one that was about 10% of what our budget would have been, which you know, puts it right out of the water. So you definitely right. can look around and find different solutions. Um, we looked at adding in the advanced security features from our Microsoft licensing, for example, which would have been much more reasonable uh, comparatively. Okay, well, that makes sense also. This is, this is some great information to share. Thank you. David, we're going to come to you now. Now, we know CISA has a huge role in cyber in the cyber ecosystem. For your first question, I'd like to ask you about cyber, or CISA's overall role in addressing ransomware for the state local educational entities. Maybe you could give us some examples of how you're helping protect those that may be joining us today. Really appreciate the opportunity to answer this. I want to break down my answer here uh, and the discussion into two key areas. One, I want to talk about some of the no-cost resources that we have available uh, for the state and local and education entities, and also want to talk about and get some insight into some of the work that we're doing on ransomware activity that that maybe isn't discussed as much. So first, uh, one resource that I definitely uh, recommend that everyone visit is the one-stop shop, stopransomware.gov. That's the federal government's uh, overall site. That includes uh, a lot of great ransomware resources, advisories, best practices, guides, uh, a word on our advisories. Uh, we often collaborate with both interagency as well as private sector partners, uh, the MSI SAC, uh, state and local governments to develop these based on their unique perspectives. So one recent example would be uh, our public advisory on the Vice Society Ransomware Group, definitely, rec- definitely recommended reading. Um, one last thing on the resources front, uh, thank you, Doug, for mentioning the malicious domain blocking and reporting uh, or protective DNS capability uh, that we fund through the MSI SAC uh, that, that blocks known malicious web domains that may be associated with, with ransomware. Um, but in addition to that, and for everyone on the call today, uh, at no cost from CISA, it's, I like to say it's included, um, we have vulnerability scanning, web application scanning, and also a phishing campaign assessment, which is, which is exactly what it sounds like, the federal government phishing your users with your agreement and permission. And these are all assessments that um, are especially applicable for, for preventing ransomware and available from CISA, again, at no cost. Uh, on the other side, talking about some of our ransomware work, uh, as Mr. Hinchman mentioned, uh, the Joint Ransomware Task Force, uh, CISA has recently announced the launch of that, uh, which we co-chair with FBI. And the task force is already looking at opportunities to enhance some of the existing coordination that we've got on ransomware assistance, uh, in particular to state and local governments and other partners. And some of the key areas of collaboration um, with the federal interagency, with the private sector, include improving some of our information sharing, our joint analysis, and our response to ransomware issues or incidents. 
So I want to get into in a little bit of detail about that and give some insight. Um, through CISA's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, we've had a lot of success recently on some of our pre-ransomware work. Uh, so we've had uh, recent success in making warning of pre-ransomware intrusion activity based on information sharing that we do with some of our key uh, trusted partners. And as a result, it would, it would really not be out of the ordinary to hear from us directly. In fact, many in the, in the audience may have heard from CESA or the FBI on this front as we work together closely. Uh, and so if we have information to share in this regard, it will be shared quickly using out-of-band communication methods. And our, no our notifications include well-structured and precise information that could be actioned by your organization to avoid being locked. Uh, but it's really important that organizations be mindful um, that they'll have to be thorough in their investigations and make sure that they fully understand the scope of a potential compromise, including, you know, compromised accounts, backdoors that may be added by the threat actor, um, other means of persistence, including through remote monitoring and management tools that's become highly popularized recently as a means of maintaining persistence to compromised networks, and looking for any signs of lateral movement in the network before being out of the woods, so to speak, before being sure that you've addressed the initial intrusion. Um, so please understand that this is not something we're able to do in every case, but I just want to highlight that if information reaches this uh, about a potentially affected organization that's about to be encrypted, we take swift action. And one final word here, um, even if you do get encrypted, we do not recommend paying ransom. Uh, this supports the activities of organized criminal groups that really can't be trusted. And in fact, often the decryptors that are provided by these groups don't work properly, and they'll engage in other forms of extortion, such as threatening to release data, even if ransom is actually paid. And affected organizations can also be ransomed again if the initial incident isn't cleaned up properly or if there's a follow-on intrusion. Um, it's important to understand, you know, some of these groups and their affiliates are very sophisticated and professionalized organizations in a, in a manner of speaking. They have hierarchies, they have position descriptions, and they even hire lawyers um, to help them craft better blackmail. And so it's important to understand this because they're making an investment in their activities and they need to monetize their intrusion into your organization um, and their, their theft of data to break even. So the best thing that you can do to interrupt that is not to pay. You know, you, uh, you, one, you bring up the wealth of, of resources that are available to our SLED uh, partners that are out there and everybody actually, that's it's available to everybody out there from your organization. And two though, you bring up, you follow up and you kind of add on to what Ben was saying earlier. It's sort of a no-win situation. Even when you, uh, even if you were to pay the ransomware uh, and whatever, there's no, like you said, you're dealing with folks that are criminals. There's no guarantee that you're going to, anything is going to be released or, or you're going to be out of the woods um, uh, for doing it. So you just wasted, not only have you lost your information and stuff, but you just wasted a boatload of money to go along with it. You know, while you're speaking, one of our um, members in the audience asked about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act funds and uh, whether that can be used for cybersecurity. So I'd like to follow up with you. Not necessarily in your schoolhouse, but DHS is managing a cybersecurity grant program that provides a billion dollars in funding to state, local, and territorial partners over the next four years. On September 16th, DHS released a notice of funding opportunity opening the application window for the grant program and giving them 60 days to apply for a grant. Are there resources within CISA maybe that might be able to help with this application process? Yep, happy to speak about that a little bit. Um, so we're very excited about this program, and we really hope that it's going to help state and local governments uh, implement those cyber best practices, those governance models of how they overall as an organization collaborate to address cyber risk. That's really important. And in terms of resources, we actually do have field-based CISA 
both cyber state coordinators and cybersecurity advisors that are there to help you with the investment justification process. So if you're a state uh, or local government representative and you don't have a good contact, if you don't know who your rep is, you can feel free to contact central at cisa.gov. That's central at cisa.gov to be connected with your regional point of contact. And we do hope to see a lot of really like creative investment justifications, multi-entity projects, uh, anything um, creative that helps you implement those cyber best practices. Uh, we'd love to see those submitted as part of this program. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. Now, Srinivas, many states have varying legislative and regulatory rules for responding to ransomware attacks, as we are just speaking about. What are some of the more prominent guidelines that you have seen for states' response to a ransomware attack? So, it's a very good question, and then, as you can imagine, right, every state has their own sovereignty. Some states are very clear on a no-ransom policy, right? They're, they're crystal clear on that. At the same time, some states are also very clear on holding their entities accountable from a ransomware perspective. I can give you some examples what I've seen in Illinois, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah. Those governors are crystal clear. They're taking ransomware very seriously. They're investing towards it. At the same time, they have statewide task force, which are working with DHS, especially with CISA, on taking a proactive approach, right? So David talked about, you know, CISA's free services, which is a big part of it, right? Being proactive. And CISA has some very good advisories on, especially the KEVs, the non-exploitable vulnerabilities. Now, states are actually taking that as one of the measures to look at the industry reports that talk about ransomware indices, right? All the top, there are about six or seven companies that list out the vulnerabilities tied to ransomware. Between the CISA's guidance and this, the states now at the leadership level are actually looking at and saying, what is a potential exposure? They're not waiting for the fact, let's get exposed, versus they're looking for the potential exposures and taking a proactive approach. And then when it comes to paying ransom, it's it's pretty much while everybody don't want to pay ransom, some governors are very clear on we're not going to pay a ransom, but it's pretty much, again, it's in consultation with the federal authorities. It's on a case-by-case -case basis they make the call. So that's what I'm saying. The good news is it is a top priority. It is really one of the things that commonly talked about and they're investing towards it. And especially in New Mexico, I can tell you, Governor Michelle Lujan wants to make sure no child is left behind because of ransomware. And she's very cr critical about kids not being impacted by ransomware. Well, that's all good, good information, but you know, you bring up a real good point that I actually kind of made in my opening comments is that we have to plan for mitigation also, right? I mean, it, the, it, yes, it's important to have the uh, proactive defenses out there, but if you do get attacked, how do you recover? Is, is that not as equally important um, to have so that possibly you don't have to pay the ransomware uh, because you were able to recover? 100%. Recovery is uh, absolutely right. If you look at cybersecurity, we all – understand it's also very important right it's pre-alert and post-alert right it's pre-ransomware post-ransomware 
And in the past, ransomware has always been a very reactive afterthought, right? Whether you're paying ransom or you're spending your money, all your dollars on your incident response. That's why you see some big name companies flying around, right? So the key here is recovery is a big part. Resilience is a big part. And every state now actually are vetting their disaster recovery plans and ransom is a big part of that. And they're also tabletop exercises. And the other trend I'm actually seeing is risk transfer. And they're making sure they're actually buying ransomware insurance. It's not just a cyber, but they actually have ransomware as part of their policies now. So they're looking at multiple mitigation points and recovery is a big part and with the cloud, and with the storage moving from on-prem to the cloud, they're also looking at cloud as an option for faster, better recoveries. I think that's one thing right. we all see during COVID, and states are actually considering that very closely as well. Yeah, excellent points, and also brings up a point that you know, COVID as horrible as it was, within IT and and cybersecurity, it actually kind of helped us. And, and kicked us in the rear end and, and got us moving a little bit faster. Thanks a lot. So now, Ben, back to you. Most states now have, and, and we've been discussing this, most states now have laws in their books mandating measures be in place to ensure the security of the data that they hold. What are some of the most prevalent and common mandates seen across the states, and do you think they're effective? Well, so I was doing my research on, on this question, being a smaller school district. Uh, I don't get all of the dates and, and everything. Uh, looking at the National Conference of State Legislatures website, there's only about 32 states that actually have laws right now, and most of them are only about two or three years old. Unfortunately, after reviewing the summaries, most of the laws only require that states establish guidelines for departments. Uh, sometimes they're including higher ed. Uh, several states require government entities to destroy or dispose of data or uh, uh, personal information so that it's unreadable or indecipherable. Uh, there's a few states that have added requirements for annual or regular audits. That, that's pretty common. And uh, even fewer, though, mention uh, any requirements for third parties that manage data for the state. So inconsistency is, is a pretty big problem. And uh, working with Doug and K12SIX.org, even basic laws like the open records laws can vary greatly from state to state. The biggest issue, of course, is uh, unfunded mandates. So that's uh, you know telling us, hey, you got to do all of these things, but you're not providing any money. And especially in K-12, most of us are already very strapped for cash. So that doesn't help us at all either. Uh, so in general, I, I'd have to say that it's a pretty good start to have some of this to have some guidance, but state governments really do have a long way to establish effective and actionable mandates. And uh, just one last comment uh, on this. We also need to be aware of the unintended, unintended consequences with some of these laws and mandates. We're trying to put things in place to protect people, but there's also uh, you know, that chance that, hey, we're because we're coming so far behind and, and being so slow, we're maybe not thinking far enough ahead of where we need to be with uh, with some of these laws and mandates. Well, you know, Ben, you bring up, like you did before, you bring up some a really good points, uh, especially when you start talking about unfunded, unfunded mandates. We all know about those. 
and basically where they end up usually as far as your uh, priority of, of um, incorporating them and putting them in place. But you also bring up something more importantly is the inconsistency across the states and even uh, within states, counties, or, or, or local governments. I, I think it's a good idea that, that um, like organizations like CISA and, and um, uh, Doug and, and folks are bringing together the, the, the consistency, in other words, interoperability and sharing of information across, uh, across the boundaries, which is so important here. The unintended yeah. consequences. Uh, it, it, that, you you mentioned the unintended consequences. Maybe um, uh, you, you want to expand on that. It, it, I could see where an organization could get frustrated that they're making me do all this stuff, but they're not giving me any resources to do it, and I can't keep up. Finally, I'm so far behind. I just give up. I'm not going to do anything. And then the problem is you're in the supply chain for the larger organizations within the government. So. That is an unintended consequence, wouldn't you call it, wouldn't you say? Um, it, it could be. I, I think that at times, you know, w we start off with the best of intentions. And mm -hmm. you start putting together a law, and maybe it's either feature creep where we start talking about, well, we either narrow the focus down so much that, then you start to say, oh, well, but you didn't, you included this, but you didn't include that. And so I'm not going to do anything about that because it wasn't included. Or right. you make the law so broad that it really can be applied to anything. Um, in, you know, in Wisconsin, one of the things that we've struggled with in trying to find answers for are what constitutes an open record even. Obviously for us, email across the board, that's seems pretty, you know, pretty standard. Uh, we had issues where you text messages, like if our school board yeah. members are texting each other about an issue, is that become an open record or is that considered to be a conversation? So when we start to do things like that, when you just say open records, but you're not defining things, you know, maybe we end up casting a much wider net than what we really intend to. So that's right. There's there's lots of different things, and I'm not a legal expert to you know to talk about some of that stuff. But you could probably go down a big rabbit hole of uh, we could spend over an hour talking about that kind of stuff. Oh, we we we, <laughs> we could probably spend days. But yep, you're absolutely right. Thanks. Okay, so Dave, you know now even small organizations are developing ransomware playbooks to have ready protection, resilience, and rapid recovery in case of ransomware attacks. As you put together a, quote, ransomware playbook, what are some current techniques and tools to protect and mitigate against ransomware that should be included? Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is I'll just echo David's comments that your first stop needs to be stopransomware.gov. Um, it has a, a ransomware guide. It has playbooks. Uh, it has other resources. You know, NIST has developed a ransomware profile, which helps you manage the risk of ransomware events to your organization. And so I don't need to go to details about that because David's covered that. But I think there's also, internally, there's a lot of good practices that we can develop in our own organizations that help. And that starts with implement user training, run phishing exercises. As David mentioned that, uh, you know, CISO will do phishing exercises for you as a, as a white hat. Um, so that people get aware, are aware to the risk of suspicious links, attachments, um, make offline backup of your data and test it to make sure it's working. 
Um, use multi-factor authentication if you can. And I think also establishing an incident response plan and a contingency plan that are well documented and most importantly, exercised so that people have the muscle memory when over a long weekend an attack happens, the person who's on the spot knows what to do right away and can start putting the plan into action. Uh, I think all of there those would make a difference. Yeah, and, all, and doing our report, all the uh, SLTT folks that we talked to said they wish they had had those plans in place before they were impacted by an incident. Outstanding, great. Yep, and and it it, it you have to have it, it's like a, a war plan when you when uh, for for DOD. I mean, it's the first five, ten, fifteen minutes that it, it's so important to have something like that, and then it's going to vary. You're going to go off in all different directions, but, you know, you have to have that initial playbook to start from and to work from. Thanks, thanks a lot. So, Doug, real simple, where do ransomware attacks come from, and how can we identify the bad actors before they attack? <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds super simple, um, and I'll, I'll sort of solve that problem right right now, and right, we can just stop the webinar. Uh, look, I mean – these are uh, criminal groups that are well organized. Um, they are operating uh, overseas uh, in places that are difficult for uh, U.S. law enforcement, U.S. government uh, to uh, prosecute. Um, and you know they are they are uh, have been growing in both boldness um, and uh, a sort of frequency of you know sorts of uh, attacks. Um, I think you know people like to focus on sort of the what some may feel is sort of a sexier aspect of how these groups work, right? And who's in them? Uh, what, what do we even call them? There's big debates about how we even name these groups, uh, and the sorts of sophisticated techniques they use to compromise organizations. But I think you know from what we see of, uh, of attacks uh, specifically targeting the K-12 sector, uh, we really see uh, the, the criminals here being relatively uh, less sophisticated in their uh, approaches and using uh, sort of a basket of techniques that are actually fairly uh, well understood. Um, and it really comes down to, um, you know, thinking about those baseline controls that, that maybe aren't going to protect you 100% of the time, but may protect you 80% of the time. Right, so uh, I can think of sort of four primary ways that we see um, agencies compromise. Um, the first is uh, email-based phishing, right? Uh, a huge problem uh, facing organizations, uh, certainly the sending of uh, malicious attachments uh, is a, a significant uh, problem as well as directing uh, individuals to malicious websites that may be spoofed. Uh, the second big uh, uh, issue that we see are exposed services, uh, exposed to the internet services that organizations are running that they may not uh, be protecting, they may not even be aware of, right? And that's why services like CISA's free scanning service is really valuable. Um, the second is, and of course, you know, with state and local government agencies and their budget challenges, uh, they are challenged to uh, be running. Uh, uh, software and technology that is contemporary and not um, sort of out of service, out of date. We do have a lot of legacy and older IT in government. Uh, it's also difficult to keep up with the cadence on patching. Um, and threat actors, particularly ransomware actors, 
uh, can weaponize known vulnerabilities uh, and have been known to do so very, very quickly. And so that's why that patching is important. And then finally, the last way that uh, you know, ransomware actors are, are taking advantage of organizations is really through password compromise and, and reuse. And there's a lot of um, uh, sort of the, the best practices around password management and authentication. Uh, maybe that implementation has maybe lagged a bit in uh, the state and local sector. I know specifically, uh, you know, speaking to multi-factor authentication, that has been a challenge for the K-12 sector in particular to implement. Uh, they are moving down that path, but, um, you know, whether you're talking about K-12 schools or other government agencies, uh, we really would, you know, could have avoided many of these sorts of incidents if we had been faster in getting those tools in place. So really, at the end of the day, we do know a lot, maybe not everything, um, about how these ransomware uh, groups are acting. Obviously, their, their tactics are evolving. But we do know many of the common ways that these groups are operating, and we do have good uh, defenses against those. You know, you bring up some real good points. Um, and you, but somebody uh, mentioned earlier, you mentioned the email-based phishing, but now text-based phishing has become really big also. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten it. I know I get it uh, almost daily, and now in the thing, and and most of the solutions that you mentioned, which are outstanding, are basically fall in the category of standard good IT housekeeping. Wouldn't you say? I would absolutely, absolutely. Outstanding. Thank you. So, so David, you know, we just spoke about ransomware playbooks earlier, and what maybe what to look for in them. Now, I understand CISA, along with MSISAC, has authored and released the CISA MSISAC Ransomware Guide. I think uh, uh, Dave mentioned that also. What is it, and is it available for our uh, state, local, educational, uh, tribal, territorial partners? Yep, Uh, so our ransomware guide is available on that same stopransomware.gov website. Uh, It's got two key sections. The first talks about best practices uh, based on common attack vectors. And the second is a ransomware response checklist. Uh, that's a really important uh, component of the ransomware guide because it's essentially a tear sheet for your cyber incident response plan that's specific to ransomware and that you can customize to meet your needs. Uh, we had a really strong demand signal from partners asking what they needed to do to be proactive about managing, managing ransomware risk as well as what they need to do uh, to respond to a successful attack. So we got to work on that and the result is this guide. And, and so we've organized the guide based on the most common ransomware attack vectors and tried to provide the most notable best practices for network defense for each of those. So we address all those key areas that Doug was discussing, um, the phishing, the precursor malware, internet-facing vulnerabilities and misconfigurations. And also we talk, talk about third-party dependencies and Doug's exactly right. It's the low-hanging fruit, the folks um, that are not addressing basic cyber risk management in those key areas that are the most susceptible. I'd like to just say one quick word on that last one, uh, the third-party dependencies. Um, you know, the third parties that have access to your network, sometimes classed as managed service providers or MSPs, will hear said. Um, this is an area that's often overlooked when assessing cyber risk, and it's very pertinent as it relates to ransomware risk uh, in particular. So it's important to hold these folks accountable to the same security standards that you impose in the rest of your organization. Uh, that could be accomplished through contract language, and it's important to set expectations with them on when they need to notify you of any security issue that they experience that could potentially impact your organization or or your customers, so uh, your citizens. So just want to emphasize that. That's outstanding. And and we've got a bunch of our um, uh, audience out there that's asking for the uh, ransomware 
mitigation resources site again. And I, I believe you had StopRansomware.gov as, as one of the primary ones, didn't you, David? Yes, sir. Outstanding. Well, got that down if you didn't get it. Uh, it's there, it's available, and it's uh, free. So thanks. Through of this, we're going to come to you now. For protection against ransomware attacks, how important is identity and credential management and access control to ensure that the person or thing accessing your data and assets is who they say they are? Absolutely. It's very important, right? And there's also a pre-notion of phishing associated with ransomware and the human interaction. While that's all true, from an access standpoint, we also have to look at it from two perspectives. While identities are very important, what we're not looking at and ransomware is taking complete advantage of is your API-based attacks. Today, a lot of the high transaction, high volume systems don't need the human intervention. And ransomware is moving up the stack to actually take advantage of some of those absolute secrets we deploy them in our CI/CD, continuous integration and continuous deployment, right? Because you're really helping your software pre-authorize and then start doing transactions. And from an identity perspective, there's also a big push on not only looking at device identity, user identity, we have to extend that to the software identity. Then comes your authorization. And also remember one interesting that's happening in ransomware today is ransomware does not require access or credentials anymore. They're using remote code executables and the weaknesses introduced in your libraries that do not really need any access and they're still very successful. It's important to understand right. your materials and it's also important to understand your access as well and expand that to your software layer. Outstanding. Okay. Thanks, Renovis. That's all good. That's, uh, well, not good information, but it's it's information that we need to know. <laughs> Thank you. So, Ben, <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about ICAM. Um, uh, what do you see the future uh, for identity credentialing and access management? Very important, right? I mean, uh, this week there was a very interesting uh, binding order from DHS CISA, right? Have better visibility of your to your devices and understand your vulnerability discovery and also make sure who has access to those, right? So there's actually a yeah. binding order today, this week, forcing every federal network to actually look at that. So when you look at discovery, it is the genesis of really understanding what do I own, what do I have? Is this managed, this is not managed? Well, if I discover, I need to manage them in a very structured way. That's where the item comes into play. Then you have what I call source of truth, and source of record, then you can build intelligence on top of that. So ITAM becomes a core element that every organization should really start thinking about, especially from a state, local, tribal, and education perspective. It is becoming more and more important as we are handing out digital devices and they come onto the network. So we want to manage all these things. To do that, you need to have a store. That's where your ITAM becomes very important. Right. Outstanding. Thank you. And and ICAM is going to be very important. I see the future of it moving forward and maybe helping us, uh, maybe even getting out of the um, uh, password uh, world. Uh, so Ben, what would you like to add to that from a uh, uh, from a small school district uh, uh, version? 
yeah, that's, um, I mean, I'm not smart enough to say, you know, this is the direction things are going to go other than that broad generalization of, you know, these tools are going to improve in adoption, in the ease of use, in capabilities, and also in attack vectors. Right now with MFA, we're currently seeing things like MFA fatigue, where you're constantly getting these notifications of this wants to log in and, you know, you just get it on your phone and eventually you just hit, yes, okay, let it go. You don't know really why or what's going on with it. Um, you just keep getting that, that response. Um, channel hijacking is another uh, attack vector that, that's happening with MFA, where malware on your phone or device is trying to steal that MFA information. So it's, it's really, it's just important to remember, um, as we we're just saying that, you know, this is just, these tools are just one piece of the puzzle that needs to be implemented and configured in conjunction with that larger security initiative. Uh, you know, again, the focus really needs to be on the fundamentals, uh, that one yep. source of truth that, you know, this is, this is the account, this is where they come from. And if the account is enabled here, it's enabled throughout Active Directory and whatever other services that you have with single sign-on and, and other aspects. And once that employee is terminated, that's processed and all those rights, all, everything there is revoked. So, you know, again, I think it just, it still comes down to, there's no, there's no silver bullet for any of this stuff. There's no waving a magic wand. These are just one more aspect of everything that we need to do in conjunction with so many other initiatives. Thank you. I think uh, we're just about to run out of time, but I'd like to get this one last question in with uh, Dave. And everybody can jump in on this one because this is one for everybody to share whatever uh, info they have. So, Dave, interoperability, we were talking about this earlier. It's critical in today's IT networking and communications ecosystems. So what are some resources for the state, local, educational, tribal, and territorial entities to take advantage of to ensure their migration efforts lead to interoperable environments? Yeah, absolutely. So GAO has done a lot of work looking at what's generally failed interoperability uh, attempts. It comes after the fact when Congress gets involved, they're unhappy, a lot, of money got, a lot of money got spent, not great results. And I think that there are three key takeaways, and this applies to an organization of any size, any interop, interoperability effort of any size. Um, have a governance board that provides consistent committed, committed leadership to what's going on, that helps the team get the resources they need. <clears throat> Before embarking on the road to interoperability, make sure you have a good understanding of customer needs through well-documented requirements and use cases. And that sounds simple, but the number of times we've seen that not happen in federal government is alarming. And I think that's a really important part. And then I think finally have a well-documented data strategy. Um, you know, there's federal data strategy practices that are out there to use. Um, and make sure that you understand how your systems are supporting the strategy that's going to include whatever is being made interoperable. And I think that strategy would also involve key steps like identifying how data connects across the organization, uh, implementing data governance, how you're going to maintain documentation about the data, leverage data standards, um, things like that. I think those are the, the three key takeaways for any organization. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how Kerasoft or Avanti can assist your ransomware defense, please visit 
www.carasoft.com or email us at avanti at Thanks again for listening and have a great day.